and then you extrapolate that to uh, the globalization of our entire food system and where a lot of uh, in-demand products because they are seen as maybe more exotic or they're uh, I don't know the more of, they were once more of a treat item that have just become day-to-day and they've come from further places where um, one there's a lot, perhaps some exploitation, well, definitely exploitation, let's be honest, um, and exploitation of people and resources. And then when it comes back to the environment, those places tend to be the ones that are going to be more severely affected by climate change as it gets worse. So, yeah, it's and that will in turn have an impact on um, the products that are available, the prices, prices globally and in those local areas. It is a hot, it's a very big chain of events and like linking of big complex issues. Welcome back to the Plant Fuel Podcast with me, your host and plant-based nutritionist, Callum. It's been a few months since my last episode of the podcast, so I can only apologize to you as the listener. Of course, as some of you may know, I've been away in South America and trying to arrange guests and the time difference has been harder than I first imagined it would be. But don't fret, I am back with another episode that is definitely going to change the way you think about food. In this episode, I speak with Kaylee Goodman, the founder of the Floop app. But what is Floop? It's basically the MyFitnessPal for tracking your foods, carbon footprint and seeing the sustainability of your meals. We delve into how food affects the world around us, how we can approach a more sustainable way of eating, the environment, land use, if it's really efficient to keep growing so many crops for so little in return when it comes to animal products, climate change and so much more. This is definitely an app you're going to want to download, especially if you're looking to become more climate friendly in the way you're leading your life. The app is packed full of information surrounding food, how you can improve your meals to make the most planet-friendly diet possible, allowing you to see the impact of food with little facts such as that certain food creates the same environmental impact as driving 10 miles in your car, and other little unique details that will definitely get you thinking, is this the right choice for me when choosing your next dish? Also, packed with recipes, even some provided by yours truly, but that's enough from me. Let's jump in with Kaylee from Floop. So sit back and enjoy this episode of the Plant Fueled Podcast. Kaylee, it's a pleasure to have you here. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Callum. <laughs> so it's been a while since we've actually talked about doing this episode. It's probably been quite a few months now, but it's finally happening. And I think it probably would have been happening sooner if it wasn't like the noisy hospitals in like South America, um, <laughs> <laughs> where apparently you get a lot of like noisy humans trying to get involved. Um, but here we are, we're both in Mexico, uh, two different places, but finally in the same time zone. So yeah. we're here to discuss environment, carb, uh, carbon footprint and your new app, Bloop. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk about it with you and share what we've been doing and what we're hoping to do as well. Oh, I can't wait to hear more about it. <laughs> so to be fair, let's start off for all the people that don't know that are, are listening. Uh, what is Floop? Yeah, so Floop's an app that tracks the carbon footprint of your meals. So the idea is that you can um, put in the meals and the recipes that you have and you make into the app. It calculates the carbon footprint and then over time you can start to re- learn how to reduce 
the carbon footprint of the the meals that you're eating so you can see which meals are more sustainable and which ingredients are more sustainable and start to adapt your diet and reduce your personal carbon footprint because we know that food is one of the um our food systems are one of the biggest contributors to greenhouse gases globally so food is quite an important way that we can reduce our climate impact that's such an amazing idea because like I've never really, I never really thought beforehand about like my impact on food. Obviously, I knew everything has an impact. I obviously know like meat has a huge impact. I know like you get like almonds and avocados and things like that that have a high impact on let's say a cabbage. Um, yeah. But, <laughs> I've, I, but it's wherever you look on the internet, it's very much kind of all over the place. You never know what to believe. Whereas now we're in all one, it's just in one place now, which is amazing. So it's kind of like my fitness pal basically for, um, for food. <laughs> Yeah, my fitness pal was actually part of the inspiration in a way, because um, back in the day, I used to kind of track calories and macronutrients and like log all the meals I had. And so I'd done that in the past. And then 20, well, when lockdown happened, um, I'd actually just got back from Australia when where there'd been all these horrific wildfires that we'd um, seen on the news in the UK. And remember we were having that really warm spring and it was yeah, everyone yeah. was loving it <laughs> but the farmers weren't loving it because um they were thinking about what's going to happen to the summer harvest and what's the impact of this change in the weather on the crops and i was back in lincolnshire come back from australia to go to lincolnshire which is where i grew up um and on the street where i lived it was basically farmlands and cabbages as you were saying and yeah seeing all the the food that was around like kind of growing up just made me think about and, and, the, and all the weather that we were experiencing and I'd seen the kind of the wildfires and everything, the smoke from that in Sydney, just got me thinking about what is the relationship between food and climate. Yeah, so I wanted to be able to see in real figures rather than just having these kind of broad stroke, like cut meat or um, don't eat avocados and stuff. I wanted to be able to see if I choose to eat these ingredients, what is the impact of that in real life kind of data? I think as well, like um, when it comes to certain foods, people really aren't aware of what foods are actually doing to the planet. Um, and uh, of course, like for me, when I was younger, um, obviously I'm more conscious now, but I just thought, you know, food just grew, we ate it, and there was like no detrimental effects to the planet. And I feel like that's still a very big thing for our society where people just don't know what food's doing. Uh, yeah. and why it's doing it and how it's doing it and the way we grow it how it's like obviously destroying parts of like our soil and stuff like that yeah 100 percent. i think just in general food education is pretty poor in the uk we don't really have a strong culture between what we eat um and understanding how it's kind of brought to us we go to the supermarket we choose our food and we eat it there's not really like a in our schools and our education systems as we kind of grow older it's not really a strong like this is how food gets to us and like a, a deep kind of relationship of understanding the processes involved so that comes down to our knowledge about food nutrition it comes down to our knowledge about food and the impact like how much energy and time goes into growing an ingredient and then the impact that that has on the world around us too so there's a lot of kind of deep rooted issues and I suppose going back to um, me growing up and being around food, like food and farms when I was a child and then as a teenager, 
saw food and knew that this was these farms were kind of involved in producing food, but I had no idea all the stages that go into growing a cabbage, kind of all the, the, the tractors that need to be used, the energy that goes into that, the fertilizers, then the processing. So taking the cabbage out of the ground, taking it to a plant and getting it to the supermarket, all these different stages. There's so much that goes on and we just don't know behind the scenes unless you work in a part of that, that supply, that, that food chain process. I think with like, as soon as you really think into it, you're kind of like, ah, oh, there's every step, 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 to the even point where it gets into like a lorry, as we travel to like, like oh, it could be the other side of the world, it could be going on the plane. Uh, for exactly. And, but you don't, no one ever really thinks of that. It's just kind of like, oh, it's just in the shop, it's in packaging, or it's not in packaging, it's just there. And you're kind of like, oh, I just picked it up, oh, it's two pounds, let's buy it, it's, let's, let's eat it. And there's not that kind of, there's not that kind of like substance of thought around it at all. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think that's something that, well, that's what we're trying to do with the app. We're trying to raise a little bit of awareness through thinking about um, thinking about like the end consequence of like the climate impact of food, but then the data that we use within the app is from life cycle assessments. And we're trying to educate for it, like our FAQs and our website and our content, what a life cycle assessment is. And it's a scientific methodology that looks at all of those stages involved in producing an ingredient or, or a food product. So right from growing it in the ground to processing it, to packaging it and transporting it to your home, that's uh, the life cycle. And so um, we're trying to make that methodology of analyzing that accessible and data and explaining it through, uh, through our website and our content, as well as in the app. Good idea as well, because I think like there's, there's not been anything like this before that's really kind of digging into exactly what's happening uh, with our food. And it's just kind of, it's making people more aware, um, which is great. And now you've launched it as well, because um, before we were going to do this, and there was like no launch date. Oh, I think you had a launch date, but it hadn't launched yet. Um, so now I'm glad we're actually uh, recording this after the launch. Otherwise, <laughs> it, it could have been very pointless. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we, um, we've been working on it for about, well, solidly for about a year. Um, so we started talking about the idea for the app on Earth Day in 2021. And then we actually launched the first version of the app on Earth Day 2022. So last Friday now from when we're talking. Um, so yeah, it's a bit, been a big year of kind of getting all the everything in place and doing all the research, designing and developing the app. But it feels really nice that we were able to launch it on that day and like just be involved in the conversation um, and yeah, put it forward so that people can start to do something and learn about food and the impact it has on the environment. Definitely as well, when creating this app, there's so much research that has to go into about every single food uh, like possible and how it impacts the environment. Like, how, how do you even start? Like, how do you even start with that? Like, do you just find like the most like basic food and just kind of work your way from there? Mm, so, yeah, so our database has got a range of uh, ingredients and food products in it. Um, so something from like a single carrot to uh, like baked beans, which are like a, um, they're quite nice thing to think about because they come in a can, you buy them in a can, but there's like lots of different processes and different parts to baked beans. So you've got the bean itself, but you've got a tomato sauce, there's like refined sugar that goes into it. So lots of different things. So um, like the life cycle for a carrot 
and getting that is going to be quite different to, uh, for the process involved in bringing a character to the supermarket is going to be quite different to baked beans so there are lots of different um studies that have looked at the life cycle assessment and our um, database brings together those studies um, for the life cycles and puts it in a nice list so you can go and add your meal your baked beans on toast or whatever into the app and you can say right i've had a can of baked beans and i've had some bread with that and it'll calculate the full kind of impact of all those ingredients that you've eaten in a meal yeah, that's amazing that's amazing because like I, you just never really think of it that way but like i'm guessing i don't know how many how many foods is there on the app together like there must have been some that you've completely had to miss out because you just haven't thought of them yet and they'll be added in later on yeah so there are i mean it's ever growing right and <laughs> <Yeah>. for <laughs> for we've got several hundred now but um yeah there's going to be lots more to come the we, we want to do is get uh ready made more ready-made products you know for and um, particularly for things like alternative meats um that could can become more sustainable um yes more sustainable ingredients in like traditional meals that you might make yourself and get those but they're very brand specific each brand will have different suppliers and different processes that need to be accounted for in the life cycle so that's kind of the next stage is bringing in more of um bringing in more specific uh brands and like kind of ready meals and uh, in addition to more of the whole foods at the moment we have a lot of whole foods in our um, ingredient list, which are generally a bit more sustainable because they haven't gone through all that processing in the same way. Yeah, yeah. It's and all the like energy your, involved in that. It's kind of like your oats and stuff are very kind of like very low compared to like, I'm guessing like oh, beyond the meats that uh, everybody, everybody enjoys. Um, yeah, well, something like beyond meats would be um, more sustainable, far more sustainable compared yeah, to yeah. beef. Yeah, but it would, um, but yeah, definitely, because there's a lot more uh, parts to creating those, there's a lot more ingredients that go into creating a processed food, it's not just like one ingredient. So there's lots of processing that goes and lots of energy that's involved in bringing all those ingredients together and making it into a product. So yeah, there is definitely more of an, um, there's more emissions produced as a byproduct of the energy that's involved in those processes but it is still more sustainable than something like meat generally. <laughs> I think I also have to ask as well, why, why the name Floop? Yeah, <laughs> so the idea of, behind Floop is that um, we want to see what the impact of the food that we eat is on the world and how the food that we eat impacts the world. So we, we like to call it, well, you could call it a feedback loop. We started calling it a foodback loop and that just got shortened to Floop. So that's how I came up with the name. <laughs> yeah, that's one thing I've always been wondering. I was like, it's, it's such a cute name as well. It's just a very, it's an, an, an adorable name for an app. And I absolutely love it. But I didn't know there was actually like a, a proper meaning or it's like kind of like, well, with mine, like Yumfu has absolutely no meaning whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> it was just on, yeah. a, on a whim. <laughs> there's, yeah, there's a bit of rationale behind it. And then our logo at the moment is, uh, it's, we've got the floop and the o's like kind of joined together like an in infinity loop to show that kind of feedback so that's the thinking behind that too amazing so <laughs> of course we know that meat is obviously one of the biggest factors in our rising carbon footprint but when it comes to like the foods that aren't meat such as like you know our fruits veggies nuts beans seeds leafy greens etc 
Um, which foods, when you were doing your research, did you find out caused a higher rise in footprint, vegetable-wise or kind of like plant-wise? Mm. We generally, for all of the for the plant-based proteins, they generally well they do have a, a significantly lower carbon footprint than meat. But there are two uh, plant-based items that stand out in terms of their comfort room, which are coffee and chocolate. And um, that's because there's very different reasons that go why they have a higher impact. Um, part of that reason is about where they're grown. Um, so they tend to be grown in tropical regions near rainforests that are then subjected to deforestation to make way for these types of crops. Um, being in tropical regions as well for us in the UK, there's a lot of uh, transport that has to go into getting them to where we live from those tropical regions, which are generally far away. Um, and then there's a lot of energy that needs to go into the processing of those ingredients as well. So if you think about um, coffee, there's like a fermentation process, there's a roasting process, there's all sorts of ways that it's extracted. Same with chocolate, um, has, there's a lot of energy that goes into those processes to get it in a form where we can then consume it or that we would like to consume it. Um, so yeah, uh, and in terms of fruit and vegetables, <laughs> one of the ones that stands out is avocados, which I think a lot of people have heard about in the news about the impact of avocados. Um, they were once a luxury item for us in the UK and they've become a lot more commonplace. And I think uh, it would be good to see it kind of move back to becoming more of a luxury item and just in terms of sustainability, because they do have not just a bigger carbon footprint, but just generally like a bigger environmental impact on um, in lots of different ways. So things like water use, the land use that's needed, fertilizer use, lots of different things. So um, which is actually something with Fluke that we would like to think about in the future. At the moment, we're focusing on the carbon footprint of ingredients, but it's nice to think about things holistically, isn't it? When we're talking about the environmental impact. So later on, we would like to bring in things like what's the water footprint of, uh, of an ingredient? And that's things we're thinking about alongside carbon footprint. Weird that you should say um, obviously coffee and uh, chocolate because in the, in the last two months, I've been to both of those farms. Like mm -hmm. in, um, and I didn't realize how much effort there was to try and create. But for one, like I, I obviously you don't really think of chocolate not being a chocolate bar. Um, yeah. When it comes to this giant fruit. <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> and this thing this, this thing is like bigger than your head and like just growing one but they like, i think it's like once a year that thing will grow on a tree yeah something ridiculous like that and i i don't know how that's producing worldwide chocolate it blew my mind and especially when um uh, coffee as well um with that just tiny little seeds on like a tree and mm -hmm. then um obviously there was there was so much progress i was i was on a, on a on a farm for like three days in like some hostel where they show you each day a different like process of it and yeah. it was like not well, going on like 17 18 steps sometimes to actually get coffee by the end of it and i was yeah. like this is this is a lot of work just for some uh just some coffee <laughs> like, yeah and then, it, obviously it just comes as like a, a seed when you buy it and you're like ah oh, that's just seed you assume it comes like that but there's so much process to it yeah 100 and it's we see it as more of a commodity good right now we just have it as part of our every day we might have several cups of coffee a day but yeah there's there's a whole chain of events that makes it get to that process 
and a huge social impact as well. I mean, we're focusing on like the environmental impact, but also a huge social impact on um, the conditions that those people are working in, the the rates that they get paid for a commodity, what we see as a commodity item, but has to go through a lot of stages and very time intensive and uh, perhaps the wages aren't as fair as they should be. Um, there are some really good um, companies that are starting to kind of challenge that though and, and uh, create more sustainable chocolate and coffee that's not just sustainable for the environment, but it's also more sustainable for the workers too. This is one of the things that I also found out like being in Colombia and expecting to taste like very good Colombian coffee. Um, so what I found out there was that 95% of their coffee that they grow there they export but keep none for themselves. So mm. everything that they have is exported. So what they have is the worst of the worst there. So like, obviously drinking some that I'm like, ah, oh, it's not that great to be fair. And then yeah. realizing that it's being exported all over the world and they just keep that tiny bit for themselves, which makes you wonder how, like, obviously we've got such a demand for it in other countries that obviously just bring out the like, price of everything else, especially like air travel and like the carbon emissions of everything going on just around coffee is, scary yeah and then you extrapolate that to uh, the globalization of our entire food system and where a lot of uh in demand products because they're seen as maybe more exotic or they're uh, i don't know the more of the were once more of a treat item that have just become day to day and they've come from further places where um one there's a lot perhaps some exploitate well definitely exploitation let's be honest um and exploitation of people and resources and then when it comes back to the environment those places tend to be the ones that are going to be more severely affected by climate change as it gets worse so yeah it's and that will in turn have an impact on um the products that are available the prices prices globally and in those local areas it is a hot it's a very big chain of events and like linking of big complex issues mm. So this is definitely why we should stick more to as well seasonal food, I guess. Um, there's obviously that better for the environment. Um, like when it's seasonal, when it's like just grown, grown uh, sorry, I can't speak, uh, just grown around a corner from you as well. There's like, it's not that issue of transportation. It's not that issue of like growing like exotic bits and pieces. It's very much, you know, find what's locally grown to you, which would have been how it was back, what, a few hundred years ago, just things like planes and cars weren't obviously a thing so you won't get these crazy crazy fruits and vegetables and meats and bits and pieces from other countries it's very sustainable yeah it's um that's one of the, like an easy way to figure out what might be a more sustainable food is thinking is asking yourself is it seasonal and is it local um are those two things together because well seasonal things can be seasonal on a local scale and they can also be seasonal on a global scale so you might be able to import pomegranates that are in season in Spain or in, uh, I don't know, Turkey or somewhere uh, and import those to the UK. And that would be more sustainable than growing pomegranates in the UK because we don't have the natural climate. We'd have to create like a whole artificial system that needs lots of energy. Um, so, so yeah, seasonal on a global scale is great in terms of making the most of the natural resources that Earth gives us. But seasonal on a local scale means that we're making the most of the Earth's natural resources and also reducing the transport element that goes into the life cycle of a set, like life cycle of an ingredient. 
um, that contributes to the overall carbon footprint. So seasonal local is a good thing. So um, I think it's quite nice when you start to kind of think about, like, I don't know, start to think about the season, seasons that we can eat from in the UK and then also start to appreciate what we have at different times of the year. Um, like, I, I love strawberry season in the UK. I'm a bit of a strawberry snob. <laughs> I love, just love British <laughs> strawberries. Like, nothing else cuts it for me. <laughs> uh, they're just so sweet and juicy. I love it. Um, and so, yeah, it's like an appreciation that comes with that. And it also has a smaller carbon footprint when you eat at the right time of, of that year as well. I, th I think as well, like English produce, like throughout the year, normally you can normally get your like broccoli and cauliflower because they're kind of like the most things that people eat on a, a weekly basis when they don't really think of any other vegetables. It's very much just kind of like, oh, you know, your courgette, your, your broccoli, cauliflower, maybe a bit like spinach, whatever. And those mm. things are constantly there all year round. Um, it's just when you start looking into the other things. But like, I, I feel like we do have quite good seasons of quite good foods. Obviously, we don't have the most exotic of foods, but compared to another country, our food's very exotic. Um, mm. Which, which it, obviously we, we see like, uh, you know, foods from like, you know, the Amazon where they got some like outrageously weird fruits and you're like, oh my <laughs> God, that's incredible. Um, but then they, they probably at the same time can look at like a country like ours and be like, oh, they got stuff that we don't have as well. And it's just like, I think being in that position where you live in a country where you have like very, what you would assume is a bland food um, to another country is very much, oh, that's something to be jealous of. Whereas we have that yeah. with other countries. Yeah, definitely. And I think you can still take um, you can still take inspiration and flavors from around the world and use those local ingredients as well. Um, so this is I just love spices. I think spices and herbs are amazing for this. And you can uh, take I, I think it's harsh on them, bless them, because like hardy winter vegetables are such a they're so substantial and they keep us going and they're great because they're local, but I just see them as boring. But then you add some spices to it and it can make them come alive and you can enjoy them in ways that you never would have even thought of. And one of my favourite things, like it's a bit of a go-to meal actually, is um, katsu curry. Um, and I just make it with like carrots and um, a bit of vegetable stock uh onion which you can get like pretty much all year and you just make a nice base add some curry powder some spices to it and it's just vegetables basically but you've got the spices and then you can enjoy mm. that with anything really and even cauliflower rice so you just grate the rice and then you've got oh, grate the cauliflower sorry and make it into rice and it's just like using your local seasonal vegetables but you just brought to life through a few spices that's like carbon so I think we have to get into meat consumption now slightly because mm -hmm. um, I feel like we can't just talk about the vegetables and how good they are without talking about <laughs> the, the, the meat consumption here. So obviously with meat, what are the issues with the carbon footprint there? Obviously, I think like for me and you, we're, we're very aware, but for the, the listener, like mm. what are the issues with uh, carbon footprint and meat? Yeah, well, meat, meat has a higher carbon footprint. That's, I mean, that's the crux of it. Um, the reason it has a higher carbon footprint is because it's a far more inefficient way of converting energy into protein. So you have to grow a load of crops basically to feed animals to then convert that into protein in, in the form of meat. Um, so I'm sure people might have heard about some of the issues around deforestation with soy and 
um, like the land use that's needed for growing soy and that kind of, uh, there's a conversation there about like, is tofu and soy bad for the planet? And that's because we're growing so much of it for production of meat. <laughs> um, so a lot of the soy that we grow about 70, 70%, 70 odd percent goes into um, food for chickens and for fish and for pork. And then that is what people eat. So it's just, in, yeah, it's just an efficient uh, way of getting um, protein into our bodies. Um, and then that means that there's a lot more energy involved in this process. Deforestation has an issue for carbon footprint because it means that we're not capturing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere through um, plants and trees that were there before. Um, so that's one of the issues. And then there's just a whole bunch of energy that goes into creating uh, soy-based feed that goes to these animals um and then you have the end production for the meat itself that is then processed and made into sausages or burgers or um cut up in some way and then there's like the whole kind of the life cycle around that as a product um so you've got several stages where you're just producing a lot of um greenhouse gases not just carbon dioxide but greenhouse gases in general and then the biggest, um, the biggest emitter by far is beef and lamb as well. Beef and lamb are the two highest, but beef, um, because you have a lot of methane being produced there as well, which is a significant, really potent greenhouse gas. Um, and the animals themselves are just so much bigger and there needs to be a lot more feed, um, a lot more time as well for getting that product to market, basically. Weirdly enough, we should say about soy and the animals because I actually have the two charts next to me, which actually have them here. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. yeah, which was, um, I, th I thought this would be interesting for a lot of people is obviously out of like the, so soy globally, 77% is animal yeah. feed. Yeah. Uh, and then 3.8% is industry, uh, industry uh, things like bio, uh, biodiesel lubricants and other bits and pieces and then 19.2 is direct uh 19.2 percent percent is direct human food and yeah. then when you break that down further as well tofu in that direct human food is 2.6 percent yeah. um and also like soy milk 2.1 tempeh 2.2 so vegans really aren't the problem here <laughs> no, no and you know tofu is a major part of of diets around the world like soy is just generally a major part of diets around the world take veganism out of the equation yeah. in asia that is such a large part of the diet anyway um historically so uh yeah it's, it's it is important for food but it, by no means if we if everybody in the world went vegan um tomorrow the amount of soy that we would need to feed that population compared to the amount of animals that are being fed with soy, I mean, it's just not even comparable. Um, we would mm. still reduce significantly the amount of uh, soy that's being produced. Absolutely, and like as you just said as well, it's been in like uh, especially like things like tofu and tempeh have been in like Indonesia and like Asian countries for so so many years. Um, so you, it's it's one of those things where we can't just be adding that as a an alternative, a vegan alternative that's led now mm. has to be like bashed for no apparent reason when it's been there for a good three thousand years before. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, it, it gets bashed so much for no apparent reason when there's other issues to um, kind of look into first, because obviously like they, then you could look into like, you know, the water uh, and the feed for, for these animals, which 
the chart that I also have here is ridiculous. Yeah. But the feed, like, but the feed to, yeah, to get um, one kilogram of beef, you need 25 kilograms of feed. Yeah. That, that's that's really not sustainable. <laughs> no. Again, it's it's it comes back to what we started off really with, the, with our conversation was that we just don't know enough about our food in general, like whether it's about the environment, whether it's about nutrition, whether it's about how it's even produced. I think, I think, um, I don't want to get the stat wrong, but I think it's around 30 odd percent of children don't know where milk comes from. Um, so yeah, there's just a, a very, there's a, there's a problem early on, isn't there about what we know about food and how, like how to cook. I mean, if you think back to when I was at school, I, I did a bit of food technology at school about how to make like a flapjack or something but nothing that's going to like teach me how to eat nutritiously and with a lower impact on the environment so yeah that's um then when we start adding in like how much energy needs to go into producing beef or chicken or a carrot or where do you even start with knowing that as a child or and then into adulthood mm. it, it is it is ridiculous how little people know these days and as you said about the whole the, the whole milk thing like mm. obviously nowadays it's kind of like you think oh that's just a natural thing to think about but as, as a child you, you just see it come in a carton you drink it yeah. and then yeah um and it's and to be fair that it's, it's the same with adults a lot of people like, a lot of people also don't know where these things come from even as adults because even like um i think there was a study i don't know how real the study was um that day, sorry, I think it's probably about two years ago, where I think it was like fifty-four percent of Americans thought that chocolate milk came from, came from a brown cow. Um, right, okay. now I don't know. How, I, don't, I don't know how how real that study was. Um, but that, but even if that was a true concept, like it's still it's still a scary thing that people don't know where these things are coming from. Yeah, and it's just there needs to be a lot more education around food, the environment, and I think over time, this thing, these things will start to happen. Because they're going yeah. to need to happen. They, they, they can't go on. We can't go on for the next like five years and just avoid it. Because yeah. by that time, it's going to be very kind of irreversible. Yeah, definitely. And um, thinking about what you, you're saying with that stat about 25, 25 kilograms, was it? Of, uh, 25 feed kilograms. For, yeah. Um, so that's, yeah, that's highly unsustainable. I, I think, I think also with that, it's like, so for each kilo, so a kilogram of like lamb was 15 kilograms of yeah. feed. Like even pork, which is lower, but like 6.4 kilograms, one kilogram. Like, they, like I, I don't see how this is now a, especially when it comes to water as well, like daily, 5.2 billion gallons of water drunk by humans compared to 45 billion gallons by cows. Yeah. Like, and yeah. We, it's, yeah. it's just mind-blowing. Yeah. And then we start, I don't know, um, if you have those animals being reared in places where there's water scarcity as well, there's not enough, or, or there's a restriction or limitation on the amount of fresh water that's available. We're very fortunate in the UK, we don't really have that problem. Um, fresh water is very abundant, but in lots of places around the world, that's not the case. Actually, funnily enough, um Brussels uh Belgium sorry is a place that's really water scarce um which really surprised me but yeah Belgium is a really water scarce country along with Spain but yet we still have these sorts of animals that are reared there so a whole host of like um other considerations to go into what the impact of that is on those communities as well
I think as well, it can be very hard depending on your geographical location as well to source foods with lower carbon footprints because obviously there's some places that are very uh, scarce in like uh, foods because obviously like they're very like desert orientated so they do have animals but I don't feel like they're the problem I don't feel like these people are the problem because they also have like one or two cows compared to like a factory farm that has what a few hundred thousand Mm -hmm. yeah I think that's when we have that conversation about sustainability it's the scale that we're that we're farming on and when I say that as well I don't just mean meat there's things like coffee and chocolate that we've already spoken about even vegetables right we we're producing so much food but we're also wasting enormous amounts so we're, we're producing more food that we can eat in some places and particularly in the the kind of global north and the uh the Western world, where we have that privilege that we can access food quite easily. And we waste so much. And that also has an impact on the environment. There's a, greenhouse gases that are produced because of food waste. Methane um, it is released from landfill. So every time we waste a bit of food, we're wasting all of that energy that has been needed to produce that, that item in the first place. And then we're also creating um, greenhouse gases when we are wasting it and it goes into landfill and that's also contributing to the environment. So it has like a double effect. Um, so, yeah. I, 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 that's completely gone over my head that, that I'd ever thought about that is the fact that obviously every time we waste food as well, that obviously adds to the problem. Um, mm -hmm. And I've never really thought of it in that way, because obviously I think of like, oh, you know, cut meat, cut whatever. I never really thought about like you know we we go to the we go to a supermarket very hungry pick up everything because we want to overindulge then don't eat it and then yeah. throw it away and then I didn't really kind of put that into the impact of the planet either. Mm. I know it's and you know I'm not a saint. I definitely waste food now and again. I have uh, I always think about this with peppers. Actually, I don't know why peppers. I guess but I, occasionally a pepper will go off in my fridge and I feel guilty about it. And then I think, I think it's because uh, I think about how long it takes to grow a pepper. And like, if you grow a pepper in your garden, which we can all do, you can all like take the seeds from a pepper that you've bought from the supermarket and you can plant them and you can grow your own pepper plant. It takes about three to six months um, to grow, like to get a full pepper. It's a long time and you have to like nurture that plant. If you think about looking after your own plants at home, I'm not very green fingered unfortunately so they don't always last that well but if you're good at that and you can like nurture this plant and it takes a takes a time it takes time to grow that like and herbs and anything that you've grown at home you'll you will know how long it takes to grow vegetables and then particularly when you bought it from the supermarket it, you don't think about that process and it just goes in the fridge and it might go off and you kind of bin it and then that is impacting so with floop um that's something that we're also thinking about as well. We've built in like a meal planning um, uh, screen. So you can add the, you can add your own recipes and find out the carbon footprint. Then you can also plan out the meals that you want to have for the week so that you can reduce food wastage that way as well. And then reduce your carbon footprint from the greenhouse gases like methane that are produced when it goes into landfill. So Let's say someone comes up to you like, Kaylee, I need to reduce my carbon footprint. I need to change the way I'm eating. I need to make sure I'm the most sustainable person properly. What's your advice to them? How, where, where are you starting? Where are you starting? 
well uh, i would say download floop obviously <laughs> you can see <laughs> no it's a good question though because i was actually thinking about it this morning and i was thinking about um like where did my like sustainability journey come from i don't know why i was thinking about this but i just was like it was like a shower thought or something and i was thinking about how like a few years ago i was living in nottingham and like thinking about food sustainability and I was like kind of cutting out or well not cutting out, but reducing red meat. Like I was thinking I'll have that as more of a treat and then um, started buying like a veg box from a local farmer and even local milk as well, like from, from local farmers. So I was thinking about that local element. So that could be like a really nice starting point, just starting, just generally like raising your awareness or your, like your mindful thought to where your food is coming from. So when you go to a supermarket, like, and you pick up a ingredient, you pick up an apple or something, like, where is it coming from? Like, just have a look at the label. I think, where is it coming from? And just kind of try to make a bit of a mindful association about like how far that apple might have traveled to get to you in that supermarket. Um, and then, yes, again, thinking about the kind of the local aspect, like other things that you could get fairly easily that's not going to be like too much out of your way to start to incorporate more seasonal and local food into your diet and then over time like um i know we've spoken before haven't we about like gradually starting to switch to swapping out meat and like having more plant-based food because no matter which way you look at it plant-based food has a lower or plant-based protein in particular has a lower um environmental impact than meat so switching that out one, two, three, every day of the week is going to massively reduce your carbon footprint. So a flexitarian diet can actually almost half your carbon footprint. That's a really easy way just by cutting out meat and then starting to cut out dairy as well. Um, so these little kind of shifts, and if you're using Floop and you're adding in the recipes that you are eating or, or trying some of the recipes that are in the app, you'll be able to see like, how those swaps are helping and what we're hoping to put in the app in future is little suggestions for like sustainable swaps so if you eat a meal we would like to be able to look at the ingredients in it and say hey how have you, have you thought about using lentils instead of beef mints and things like that and it will mm. uh, suggest some little swaps for you so that's where we're so headed that's what we'd like to do so it's more things like a bolognese you kind of like uh, instead of you the mints you can use i don't know this you can use like your lentils or like, like mushrooms or something yeah, yeah. Which is a really like such, such a such a good idea as well because obviously some people just don't think what they can use as an alternative. They're like, oh, I can't think of anything to use instead of mints. I'll just use mints. But if you give them yeah. the option of like, there's there's lentils. There's lentils once they're like boiled down. There's as much mushy as mints are as well. Like yeah. both, they both got a, a, a sub like a texture that's very much similar once they're both or what like simmered for like I don't know how long you make a bolognese or a chili for but it's, yeah. it's normally it's an hour or so and it's normally yeah. the same substance afterwards but people don't realize that they look, they look at lentil and be like it looks like a little kind of hard seed but don't realize that that process does get better it does taste better you just don't eat them on their own mm. i think it's partly building your confidence as well like some of these ingredients will be new and when i first started eating um well plant well eating plant-based really uh I, that was the first time i cooked tofu i was terrified i didn't know what to do but actually it's fine i use it all the time now it's like 
you can't go wrong with it. You can't undercook it. You can just eat it. So you can just experiment and building up that confidence to try anything. So another way that you could try eating more sustainably or living more sustainably is um, just make starting to learn how to make a few easy meals from scratch. So if you're someone who has a lot of ready meals or um, a lot of takeouts or something, just try making something or recreating something yourself, just Googling a recipe and, and recreating that. Um, you'll start to learn skills to cook with new ingredients, to like cut or chop ingredients in a way that's quicker and faster. So you just become better. The only way you get better at something is to do it more. It's the same, same with cooking. Um, so yeah, that's a, that's a nice way. And then obviously we spoke about food waste, like cutting out food waste is great. There are little things you can do in the kitchen as well, like um, swapping reusable items. And I think when you start to bring your attention to um, the sustainability of food, it like just kind of manifests into the rest of your life. And you start thinking about the sustainability of other habits that you have. Absolutely. And I think like even starting off with like just one meal a week to like, then, then as well, like I, I normally advise people to kind of start with breakfast because it's, yes. it's, it's the easiest one to turn into a very plant-based, uh, very healthy milk and like a porridge or oatmeal wherever you are in the world, whatever you want to call it. Um, yeah. Like having those 100%. like fruit, 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 like fruit and like you know, oat milk or that. And that's an easy swap. And then once you got confident with that, then you kind of move on to like maybe a lunch because a lunch you could always make like a salad or a burrito or something like that. Um, and then it just gets easier and easier and then start on your dinners. Because uh, dinners, I, I would assume for someone that's eaten like, I don't know, meat for like the last 50 years, it's gonna be a big one to swap over. Um, yeah. So it's just making those small changes until they're feeling more and more confident to start making those slight little swaps, bits and pieces, and just kind of building that confidence up. Yeah, definitely. I think breakfast is a really nice way to to start building that confidence. And yeah, again, if you were to put that into the Floop app, um, you you could put in cereal and you put in dairy milk on Monday and then on Tuesday you try it with oat milk and you'll be able to see, you'll be able to directly compare just by swapping that one ingredient, what the impact of that is on your carbon footprint. Um, and yeah, once you see that, it's kind of like, well, it tastes okay which it will do <laughs> it'll taste okay to you it might taste a bit different but it's still tasty and that you just get used to it and then it's easier to carry on making those changes and yeah um kind of joy yeah if everyone does that if everyone makes those small little swaps it's a really big impact there's billions of us on the planet if everyone does that that's a huge impact that we can have on the the carbon footprint of our food systems actually when it kind of left one thing i was actually meant to ask you at one point which was plant-based milks which one's the best and which one's the worst <laughs> yeah so I, I think i already know the answer to it but i like i'm just gonna see yeah yeah um so let's start with the the worst one um that would be coconut milk and that's because um again thinking about like the tropics and where coconuts are grown um issues around deforestation that we spoke about like with chocolate and coffee um, and then transport as well, getting it to the UK. Um, there's also like, there's, there's not just a carbon footprint again with uh, coconut, there's a lot of water that goes into producing coconut milk. On the contrast to that, if you look at all different environmental factors, then almond milk 
uh, sorry, oat milk is the best one. Almond milk actually has a slightly uh, lower carbon footprint than oat milk, but it uses a lot more water. So oat milk's pretty good in terms of um, has a low carbon footprint, low water use. It can be in the UK. It can be grown. We can grow oats. We can grow them locally. There's less trans trans transport needed. Um, yeah, oat milk's a winner, and I. I personally love oat milk. I love the taste of it. It's kind of like biscuity and goes really well in coffee. I just love it in cereal as well. Oat milk is by far my favorite. But yeah. They, they aren't what I expected you to say, actually. That's all. Oh, what, what did see, you expect? See, see I, I assumed almond milk would be probably one of the worst. Um, but also the best I would have assumed maybe pea milk. Mm, pea milk, yeah. That's a good one, actually. Um, I'll do some investigation on pea milk, but yeah. Also, potato milk's a uh, fairly new one. I don't know if you've seen that. Yeah, it's called Doug or something like that. Yeah, Doug. <laughs> so I w I'm really intrigued to see what the... We don't have potato milk in the app yet, but I'm really intrigued to get that in there and see what the life cycle assessment of that shows. Um, I want to know what it tastes like as well, because I... In my head, I can't imagine potato milk being in any way nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm intrigued as well, but I mean there's there's so many things that I think, oh I'm really skeptical about this and then I just love it. Like I always think that about tempeh actually. Tempeh is like is one of my favourite things ever. Like even if I stopped eating vegan, I like, I'd still gorge on tempeh. And uh but when you sit describe it to people, oh it's fermented soybeans, they're just like, <laughs> that is wrong. <laughs> But it's delicious. That's, that's, ex that's exactly how I felt when I first tried uh, tempeh because I was like, this doesn't look right. Like yeah. sometimes you can buy it and it may have like a bit of like mold to it. And you're like, yeah. oh, do I, do I really want to see this? In? And like, then you eat it. Like this is probably the, one of the best things I've ever tasted. Oh, I it's love so it. good. But it's so good. It's, it's one thing I missed because it's one thing I haven't been able to find in South America. Tempeh. Yeah, I, I, found, mm. I found tofu. I found satan, I found every other like lentils, black beans, everything. Tempeh is the hardest thing to find. And the only place I could find it was in Colombia. Okay. Um, there's, there's a place called House of Tempeh. Or oh, wow. And I, I went there and they'd run out of tempeh. <laughs> oh, <laughs> devastated. I, I was, I, I was so upset. There's one thing I do miss. Um, it's just such a, such a flavorful food when you mix it with anything else just sucks in that uh flavor yeah it's uh it's you've got a great texture just i just love it i love it so yeah um intrigued to see what potato milk <laughs> tastes like like i and hopefully it'll overcome my like dubious nature like with tempeh <laughs> you know, that's the thing like i i felt the same when i first ever saw like hemp milk i was like mm. oh it's not gonna taste great and then hemp milk's actually nice uh flax milk cashew uh, cashew milk kind of tastes like cashews it's mm. uh it's not the nicest of flavors have you ever tried pistachio milk because that is amazing see i haven't i'm not a huge fan of pistachios so, uh, so that's why that's why it's put me off but i may i may try it yeah it's great so this is the this is the amazing thing as well when you start to kind of broaden the the foods that you're trying and you start experimenting to whether it's reduce your carbon footprint or reduce um meat or milk for other reasons associated with veganism or animal welfare reasons you you have such a range of uh like of food that you never tried before and like if you've had milk your whole life for example you've just had milk like and then you start to try and venture out and you try these different types of milk it's like a whole kind of rainbow of flavors uh, that you can start to mix into your smoothies or your cereal or whatever you want 
and it gives a lot of variety and reduces your carbon footprint. It's great. This is the thing. This is the one thing I li I like to mention to people is the fact that they're like, oh, like a, a plant based diet or a vegan diet is so restrictive. I'm like, you're cut. Like all I did was cut out like five different meats that you eat on a like weekly basis, and then I like tried five thousand new different plant foods in this time. Um, so I've cut out like what you know your your chicken, your your pork, your beef, your lamb, maybe some milk. Like that gone five things, and then I've tried like what every different kind of nut and seed under the sun, like. Things like lentils, I didn't really know. I didn't really know lentils existed. To be fair, but <laughs> like also beans, I just assume you know baked beans. But black beans are a pair killer. Love them. Yeah. Um, but you, you try all these new things that you just don't ever think of trying because you haven't wandered down that part of the supermarket just to kind of see what's there. And then you find yeah. so many new things like quinoa. I, I yeah, it's a, there's a lot of variety that can be had when you. When you, it's that confidence building, is it? When you start to um, feel confident in exploring and getting presented with recipes or different choices to like inspiration to try these things that you might not have, uh, yeah, ever been exposed to before. So, yeah, it's very exciting. Mm. So, you've travelled a lot as well. Yeah. So, what what country would you say is the hardest to consume a planet friendly diet? Oh. <laughs> that's a good question i don't think it's necessarily difficult in in any of the countries because if you take back the principles of seasonal and local you can still eat seasonally and locally in the the mm. country that you're in so um i'm yeah i'm in mexico right now and what's going to be seasonal and local to me here is going to be quite different to what's seasonal and local in the UK. Um, in terms of like looking at fluke to track the carbon footprint, there will be some differences. And obviously like uh, an avocado that I eat in Mexico will not have had the same transport and been uh, transported by plane to the UK. Uh, so there's a whole kind of, there's a difference there, but actually you can get a pretty good idea because transport only generally accounts for about 10% of a food's total carbon footprint so like the rest of the 90 percent, you get an idea from the um the farming the processing then the, the production of a product um that's where the majority of the carbon footprint comes from so i think yeah obviously that's different in different countries but yeah we get still get a pretty good idea from using flute what what's sustainable and what's not and yeah, you can just eat locally and seasonally wherever you are. So I don't think I don't necessarily think it's that difficult. Um, it might be difficult to find like uh, meat free options in some country, more difficult to find meat free options. Um, but there's always a way around it. Uh, a lot of the meat free options as well, you might be expecting like a meat alternative, which isn't necessarily available. And that's that's more processed anyway. So if you stick to whole foods, there's generally options and you can omit the cheese or omit the eggs or whatever. I feel like, especially when, um, like in uh, in Peru, I was kind of mm. like, I went obviously for the meat-free option and most of it is just a whole food. But, but just once you take away that kind of the, the meat part of it, it's a very plant-predominant diet. Um, where you're taking away what like the eggs or the cheese or like the bit of meat on top and then the rest of it underneath is very much just like plant orientated with like your mushrooms and like uh your lentils and beans i'm like ah, like this works for me like i'm happy with that 
But um, it's just obviously making those like tiny little spots. But yeah, like I, I, like I haven't found it hard at all to get those meat-free options. Obviously, you, you like people are kind of like, oh, I want the, the the alternative. But if you're eating the whole foods, like the majority of countries are very whole foods anyway, mm. or they get like, the most of their calories from plants, but don't realize it. Yeah, yeah, it's um. I think, guess it's probably easier in some countries. We've already spoken about Southeast Asia and um, yeah, in India as well, where vegetarian food pulses are such a huge part of the diet. So those places will be easier when you're traveling or visiting places because it's just so, meat hasn't been fundamental and dairy as well. Like uh, in warmer continents, uh, dairy is just not as much as part of the diet because it's, practically it's much harder to refrigerate and keep cool and uh, yeah just generally more expensive so in some countries it's easier that like the uh, pulses beans legumes tofu just naturally more available in traditional dishes um so it's more difficult in countries where meat is like the usa kind of stands out to me that meat is just so um prominent in the diet <laughs> that it would be more difficult I suppose there if there weren't all the alternatives yeah I think as well like when you when we look into like America England Australia it's very westernized culture and the westernized yes. culture is very much kind of like screw vegetables here's a load of burgers here's a load of hot dogs here's something else here's something else to get your taste buds wanting more a lot of additives as well whereas all these other countries don't have those things that are keeping you constantly addicted to these bits and pieces mm. it's fascinating isn't it that that's really a generational like the reason that meat is so ingrained into our diets is because it's through generations where it was once seen as a luxury and then um if you were able to afford meat that kind of was a social status and if you were to have that more and then that that's kind of pushed it to be become part of the day-to-day -day over a few decades and now for our generation, or even for our parents' generation, that was just, that's just part of it. That's just what we eat. And it's because of a, basically a social status that's, cut, that's influenced that in the first place. Um, and now we just take it at kind of face value and that's what we grew up around. That's what I grew up around, certainly. Um, yeah. Absolutely, because I've, uh, like, I, I grew up with, like, obviously, like my dad, very big meat eater, my mom as well. Uh, but now mum's completely vegan, um, <laughs> sister's completely vegan, me, and then my dad, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> it's great that um, that people are willing to try it more though. Um, and it's certainly my family. I mean, it's, yeah, it's just what we had growing up. There wasn't really, there wasn't really a conversation around anything else, like just what we had. Um, but now there's definitely an openness in my family to trying alternative foods or vegetarian food vegan food and yeah actually enjoying it as well maybe i haven't convinced uh, a whole sh like fundamental shift but even those small changes that um like being open to try it and occasionally make something that's vegan or vegetarian if everyone does that it's a huge shift to reducing like an overall carbon footprint and environmental impact yeah, absolutely. I think for, um, for instance, my dad, he now 
he likes to he likes to boast when he does it to me. It's he ring me. It's like oh, I did a meat free day today, and, um, and it's like it's like on a Monday or a Friday he'll do it, and he gets really excited about it. But he's like, oh, you're gonna be so proud of me. I'm like, that's well, great. If, if you can do it for one day, let's let's try two. Let's do two. Um, like just work just working your way up, and yeah, one, yeah, one but day, I, I will get it to do it. I will get him to do it a whole week. It's, it's gonna happen. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing, isn't it? And like if he's if he's gone, I don't know how old your dad is, but if he's gone a few decades um, of that being his normal and now he's able to start making those shifts. Again, if I just keep going back to all of us eat three, hopefully eat three times a day, right? Maybe more, maybe less, but we all have to eat to stay alive. And that's a huge way that we can reduce our carbon footprint or yeah, just have a positive impact by shifting a few things around. You don't have to do it all the time. But if you just start by doing it once a week, twice a week, building it up, that if you're doing that every single week, every single year, that's a massive impact that we can all have. It's a giant shift on the planet as well. Like, don't yeah. eat, like although, although you think that one person can't change anything, when that one person is quite a few people doing that, it starts creating a, a movement and it starts creating a bigger change. So yeah. although you think that, oh, I may just be having like a, a meat-free day, Although some people are like, oh, it's probably nothing. If everybody does that meat free day, it's a huge on a global scale, massive. Mm -hmm. And it also it influences businesses, governments to take even more action, you know, and to set policies or like influence like the norm. Um, I mean, we've seen that through veganism already over the last few years. We've seen the rise of veganism, and we've seen that that's that businesses basically they want to meet that demand they want to provide a product or they want to provide a service that caters to that change in dietary behavior and they want to make money off it and so they're going to meet the consumer demand to do that and if that has a um a benefit towards the planet if that has a benefit towards animals that's amazing if we, we can actually influence a sustainable future through what we buy and it doesn't have to cost loads it doesn't mean you have to go and buy all these expensive alternatives. You can swap your beef for black beans. You can swap your beef for lentils or chicken for tofu or whatever. It's not going to cost you more money. Mm. Especially when you when you mention like the big industries, um, because never did I ever think that I would ever see a fully plant based Burger King in the middle of mm. London. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's amazing, isn't it? And it's just some of the household names that we have, Cadbury's, like. Things that have, I don't know, you probably never would have expected there to be a fully plant-based option for things. It, yeah, it I just shows that power. Yeah. I don't think I've expected McDonald's to have it, the McPlant, um, mm. which to be fair, like I, I've had it once or twice and it's actually really good. It's, it's good. So it's good. really good. It's very good. <laughs> um, I, it, I, was, I was very surprised. It, I know. And again, you don't, you don't have to be fully vegan to enjoy that. You don't, you can, if you're on a flexitarian diet or you just want to try it, like you don't have to give yourself a label. You can just go and try it and um, see if you like it or not. It's still, it's still a positive, it's still positive progress in my eyes. Still. Yeah, absolutely. It's like the, the more these things come out, like obviously, you know, like dairy milk, because they're like, uh, they're chocolate bars now. And like, uh, obviously you've got like Domino's, you've got Burger King, you've got Papa John's, everyone, mm -hmm. even though they, these big, Although companies are still doing a lot of harm to the planet, they're still trying to make positive changes, although it is only led by consumer demand. Um, mm. So it is only for their own, their own benefit they're doing it. 
but it's still making slightly positive changes even if it's not in their best interest mm, I think yeah I think the what's the phrase that comes to mind don't make good the enemy of perfect is mm. that yeah for sure these these businesses or, or I say business these large corporations there's a history of kind of like um not so well not so sustainable practices not so whatever practices but if there's if there are small steps in different ways that they're trying to be better some uh, yes sometimes it it may be greenwashing and we want to call that out for sure but if there are like genuine steps to offer something that's more, more sustainable even if it's not 100 perfect that's that's good that's um we shouldn't necessarily criticize for that we should definitely encourage and influence more of it but I don't think we should criticize um, those steps either. So we're going to wrap this up in a second, but we've got a few more questions before okay. we end. So obviously you've got your app, you've got Fluke. So why should we download Fluke? <laughs> to, to reduce your climate impact, <laughs> to um, have, yeah, to basically, we say, we're starting a food fight against climate change so to join that food fight like to get involved and just start to learn and challenge your own awareness about what's involved in the food that you're eating and what the impact of that food that you're eating is having on the planet and um basically become part of this vision that we've already spoken about of influencing a more sustainable future through the products that you buy and then influencing businesses, influencing governments, government, governments, and even other people to join you in living more sustainably. I think as well, when you get in there, when you get into food, there's also, you're not going to get lost. There's a lot of different recipes in there that you can take on board as well, um, which yeah. have been supplied by quite a few different people, especially like I've, I've supplied, I think, maybe three. Um, yeah, you've, you've but, given us some recipes, which is amazing. And that list is growing. Like we wanted to, we didn't want to just say, this is the carbon footprint and along with the carbon footprint we also have like real life data so we would compare the carbon footprint of your spaghetti bolognese to how many miles driven or how many times you could have boiled a kettle or how many times you could have um, charged your smartphone those sorts of things um we don't want to just say this is what you've done or this is the impact we wanted to be able to provide sustainable options or like recipes to try so that you can experiment with eating more low carbon I think that's good as well because that way you're obviously giving people options for trying to make better practices with their life. Yeah. So at the moment it's only on iOS? Yeah, it's only on iPhone at the moment. Um, our team, we're basically bootstrapping our way into kind of launching this. So we've been working on it for the last year or so. Um, we've got a grant which has enabled us to bring it to iPhone, which is our first step but then later on this year we're going to be launching on android we will actually be launching a crowdfunding campaign to help us do that because we need to work with another develop developer um so that we can get that available so if you would like to kind of stay involved with what's happening and get updates on when we're releasing the app you can sign up on our website we've got a our newsletter which has got like a section to sign up for android our android waitlist um so that's coming later on this year. And we have lots of ideas for what we want to do with the app and where it could go. Um, so watch the space. We've got some kind of other features that we're going to be building in to help you 
get uh, those sustainable swaps we talked about and um, break down more of some of the ingredients that are in the um, in your recipes so you get more of an understanding as well and see how you can choose more sustainable meals. So before we round that up, the one question I like to ask everybody that ever comes on is, so you've got back late, you're not feeling like cooking, you're being lazy, but you want something slightly nutritious. It doesn't even have to be nutritious. Um, <laughs> what, <laughs> what are you making? What are you making for yourself? Oh my God. <laughs> um, good question. Do you know what the first thing that's come to mind, which is, it's very seasonal, but mince pies, I thought I love mince pies. <laughs> but I've not had any vegan ones that's been vegan. But I just love, I love a beans on toast, to be honest. Just a beans on toast, like very beans quick. Yeah, it's got, you've yeah, got some protein, got some carbs, bit of sugar, you know. <laughs> um, I find that very comforting, love a beans on toast. That, that's such a good choice. Oh, <laughs> now you said that I actually miss beans on toast. I haven't had beans. There's so many things I have missed since being over here. Yeah, I can't it, get over here. <laughs> yeah, it's difficult to find beans outside the UK, which makes it even more special. And I always feel a little bit patriotic when I have beans on toast. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Like uh, beans on toast is up there, one of the main things I miss while being over here. <laughs> Love it. I've always loved it. So I think everything so thank you so much for coming on thank you so much for having me i've really enjoyed chatting to you about all things food sustainability and fluke um so yeah thanks so much for your time and uh for let me share it it's been a pleasure <laughs>